I shall always remember him as one of the lights across my path, which never failed to help me to find direction, and to the end never flickered or lost its clarity. These words were written by a Church of England rector, the Reverend Philip Gray, about Gerald O'Donovan after his death in 1942. We begin his story in St. Brendan's Cathedral in Loch Ray. Our guide is Murray Dunleavy of the National Museum. Here in Loch Ray Cathedral, you can see the man, Father Gerald O'Donovan, a man who understood Ireland, who understood the culture of Ireland sufficiently to actually want it to be reinterpreted, not as copies, hackneyed copies of the Book of Kells and, and the Book of Lindisfarne and Cormac's Chapel, but a new type of life and a new type of art. As well as that, you can see a man who was aware of international movements and the marvellous international movement that you see in the Madonna and Child there by John Hunt. Um, and also a man who wants to use Irish materials and Irish workmen. And even all of the woodwork which is done here was carved by a local man, uh, Mr Conniff from Loch Ray. So you're getting the three things, a man, a man, a priest, who wanted to develop and encourage Irish industry, but who wanted to do it in an international style so as to make Ireland and the Irish cultural movement important in the whole international line. Gerald O'Donovan is remembered, if at all, as the priest who was responsible for the splendid Celtic artwork in St Brendan's Cathedral. The early stained glass windows, the wood carvings, the metalwork, the embroidered vestments and sodality banners were all commissioned by him, and the work of the artists and craftsmen he had gathered together at the turn of the century continued for decades after he himself had left Loch Ray and the priesthood. He was also a writer of considerable talent who contributed to the Irish literary revival and to the journals and reviews of his day. He was the author of six novels which are based largely on his Irish experience and which are now, unfortunately, out of print. His life falls naturally into two parts. The first 33 years were spent in Ireland, seven of them as a priest in Loch Ray. The second part was spent as a layman, mostly in England, where he married and had three children, two daughters and a son. During this later period, and not without difficulty, he made his living mainly by his pen, as his daughter Bridget recalls. He was a writer, um, and he earned his living by writing. Um, in the war he'd been a civil servant and a publisher, but in the ordinary way he was a, he was a journalist. But uh, we never saw any of his work. Um, and we never knew what kind of, what the job was or where it was, because he'd always told my mother that if we knew, we might let it out. And he was particularly afraid. He had some job writing um, book reviews and reading for American publishers. And he was afraid that if anybody found out where it was, the Catholics would um, influence the American publishers to take away the job. There were some grounds for this fear, as we shall hear later on. When he died at Albury in Surrey on the 26th of July 1942, no notice of his death appeared in any Irish newspaper. By then he was almost totally forgotten in Ireland. The Times of London did, however, carry an obituary. Gerald O'Donovan was best known as a writer by his first novel, Father Ralph which was, like his later novels, a careful, able documentary and, in parts, brilliant presentment of Irish life, the life he knew and grew up in. 
He was a man of wide and versatile interests. He was successively sub-warden of Toynbee Hall, publisher and head of the Italian section of Crewe House during the last war. From 1938 on, until his health failed, he threw himself into the assistance of Czech refugees. His sympathetic understanding of their problems was a characteristic example of the generous help he always gave to those in need. This tribute was paid by his close friend of over 20 years, the writer Rose Macaulay, who concluded on a personal note. His wise judgment and unstinting interest were always on tap behind his reserve and behind the sometimes sardonic wit that was his Irish heritage. To know him was to love him. But if he was forgotten in Ireland in 1942, 40 years earlier he was a well-known figure. His seven years as a priest in Loch Ray from 1897 to 1904 coincided with that period when, in a great outpouring of national enthusiasm, the Gaelic League, the Irish Literary Revival and the Cooperative Movement were all working for social and cultural reform. He was among the idealists who took a leading part in this work, a work which was essentially concerned with the task of nation-building that brought him into close association with many distinguished contemporaries, W.B. Yeats, Horace Plunkett, Lady Gregory, George Moore and A.E. among them. The newspapers and periodicals of the time give us an idea of his standing in the country. A leader of opinion in Ireland. That was Edward Martin, the Galway landlord, playwright and founder of the Palestrina Choir, writing in The Leader in February 1903. And two years earlier, D.P. Moran, the editor of that same magazine, wrote... Father O'Donovan of Loch Ray is admitted on all hands to be one of the most vigorous and gifted of the Irishmen of these times. The leader welcomes anything he has to say, whether it be in accordance with its views or against them. The Irish Catholic joined in appreciation. A very distinguished ecclesiastic with whose fame as a patriot priest all Ireland is today ringing. Across the span of 80 years, Mrs Mary Condon of Loch Ray remembered him when she was a little girl. Very handsome, good-looking man. You'd love to look at him. Fine, lively, lively-looking man, a nice man. Lovely man, everyone loved him. He was loved and liked in this town. Why wouldn't he for what he'd done? For the, that cathedral. The building, the building was poor, hard times at the time. His father and mother both came from County Cork, and his father, Jeremiah O'Donovan, worked with the Board of Works. His job as clerk of works took him to various places around the country and it was while he was working on the building of a new pier at Kilkeel in County Down that his son was born on the 15th of July 1871. He was christened Jeremiah after his father but later on he was to adopt the name Gerald. He went to school in Cork, Galway and Sligo. Between assignments for the Board of Works the O'Donovan family returned to the home farm at Desert Surges near Bandon where their ancestors had been tenant farmers on the estate of the Earl of Bandon. In later life, according to his daughter Bridget, he never spoke about his early years in Ireland, but she thinks he must have been happy and secure, in contrast to her mother, who came from an Anglo-Irish military family and who led a wandering life between relatives in Ireland and Rome. He was an extremely affectionate man, and I don't think he would have had so much affection if he hadn't been affectionately treated in childhood. I mean, he was a far more... For example, my mother had been very badly treated in childhood. 
not purposely, but because um, her mother always went with her father, the children were shoved around between one relative and another and never had a settled background. And she found it very difficult to be as genuinely affectionate as he, as he was. So he, I think, must have had a very settled childhood and been very fond of a large number of people. At the age of 18, he entered St. Patrick's College, Maynooth, where he was ordained on the 23rd of July, 1895. What kind of a man was the young Gerald O'Donovan? Our best source of information is his autobiographical novel, Father Ralph, written in 1913. The hero is Ralph O'Brien. It was his mother's idea that Ralph O'Brien should be a priest. She had brooded happily on the thought for months before his birth. She had prayed that her firstborn should be a son and never doubted that it would be. He was to grow up unspotted from the world, holy as a priest of God should be. Eventually, Ralph goes to Maynooth College to study for the priesthood. Here's an impression of the college, as seen by him and his friend, another student named Divine. During the few free days before the arrival of the general body of students, Ralph, accompanied by Divine, explores the college. The pokey, ill-supplied divisional libraries, without catalogue, order or classification, or any book that one wanted to read. The rather fine college library, not quite as despicable as the admirer of Mary Corelli found it, but still pitifully unrepresentative of any general culture. The Pugin cloisters of St Mary's was their favourite walk, lined on one side by photographs of the ordination classes from many years back, on the other by immense glaring oil paintings of bishops, archbishops and cardinals who had been students of the college, fashion plate reproductions of magnificent full-dress ecclesiastical garments. After his ordination, the fictional hero, Father Ralph, was appointed curate of Bonahone. Bonahone had little charm in the brightest days of summer, but on wet winter evenings it seemed to Ralph to be the dreariest place on earth. The prevailing southwest wind rakes the main street from end to end, driving a sleety rain before it in gusts. Dim lamps marked the outlines of the street, but gave no help in avoiding loose flags in the paved footway. An incautious step and a squirt of icy water covered one from head to heel. Yet on the wettest nights, men braved the elements to escape from their dismal cabins, compared with which the public houses, dingy, dirty and depressing, were havens of light and comfort. They at least gave shelter from wind and rain and were the only social resource of the town. During many a walk through the streets at night, Ralph pondered the social problem of the parish. Every avenue of escape from the existing condition seemed to be blocked by a dead wall. The thought of a club first struck him as he stood one wet night opposite Darcy's brightly lit public house. Like Father Ralph in Bonahone, Father O'Donovan in Loch Ray pondered the social problem of the parish, and the club he founded was St. Brendan's Total Abstinence Society. The society was housed in the Temperance Hall, a property he had rented from the British War Office. It opened in 1901 with a membership of 200 men, and before long, this number increased to 300. By its constitution, it was non-political and non-sectarian. John F. Ryan. From the beginning, 
uh, it became involved in the work of the Gaelic League. Uh, the first public lecture delivered in the town uh, under its auspices uh, was by Douglas Hyde. Weekly meetings of the Gaelic League, classes for teaching Irish and lectures in Irish music uh, were held on its premises. Uh, and in April 1901, a band was formed uh, which took part in the annual Rafter commemoration in Kilneen. Uh, at the weekly general meetings, a uh, chapter of Joyce's History of Ireland uh, was read by the President to the members and uh, he, he awarded uh, prizes uh, for the best ri written essay based on some theme from the book. Uh, in the education area, he employed a teacher to give drawing instructions to the tradesmen of the town and uh, he had the rooms in the barracks equipped for the opening of a night school uh, where education in crafts and uh, in uh, general subjects uh, would be imparted. And he pressurised the district councillors to have the Technical Instruction Act put into force in the town. Uh, the meetings also put forward resolutions to the town commissioners, uh, urging proper lighting, housing and sanitary arrangements. Uh, and other suggestions were also put forward uh, for uh, generally improving the town. The activities in Loch Ray were part of a wider movement for change in the last quarter of the 19th century. Historian Gerodo Tuhi, University College, Galway. Uh, there were social, intellectual and political dimensions to this major revival in Irish life. Perhaps the major question in social debate was the land question. And as a result of the activities of the Land League and the Land War of the late 1870s and er, 80, 1880s, the ownership of land in Ireland was transferred in the late 19th and early 20th century from the landlords to the tenant farmers of Ireland. But of course that was only the start of the question because the, the other matter regarding land was how it was used, the use of land, making it more productive, getting the best value possible for it, from it. And here particularly the activities of Sir Horace Plunkett and the Irish Agricultural Organisation Society established in 1894 was to be particularly important. In the same way, in political terms, Home Rule for Ireland became the major matter in the mid-1880s, the question of self-government for an Irish state. But this again prompted the question, what kind of Ireland and what kind of people was a state being demanded for? What was the basis of Irishness? And this in turn inspired a major debate on literary matters, in questions relating to the Irish language as the basis for Irish identity, the matter of the independence of the Irish mind and an intellectual tradition that was recognisably Irish, even in terms of sport and leisure activities, the re-emphasis again on nativism, on native sports and on the native genius was an important part of the activity of the late 19th century. And even the, 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 the quickest glance through some of the organisations founded gives some sense of the surge of activity. The, the GAA in 1884, the National Literary Society 1892, the Gaelic League in 1893, the Irish Agricultural Society of Plunkett in 1894, not to mention at all a plethora of journals and newspapers and special publications devoted to an intense debate on the matter of Ireland. Now, of course, O'Donovan, like many priests, priests particularly being dispersed throughout the countryside, an educated elite throughout all the parishes of Ireland, O'Donovan was heavily involved in many of these activities. O'Donovan saw these movements not as separate, but interlocked in a wide movement for national renewal. He worked on many fronts for the Irish-Ireland ideal. The newspapers and reviews of the time reported his speeches and printed his articles 
and in them he expressed his own philosophy. The Gaelic League, as I see it, aims at the creation of an Irish Ireland. It hopes to accomplish this by the spread of true national ideas. Once these ideas are grasped, a development of Ireland from within, embracing language, literature, art, industries and music will necessarily follow. Knowledge precedes love, and of this comes service. The doorway to a knowledge of Ireland is her language and her history. That was from a lecture called Our Duty to the Language Movement, which he gave in September 1902 at the Rotunda in Dublin. Among the audience was Porrick Pierce, and it's interesting to note that some of his ideas on education were close to those later developed by Pierce. O'Donovan himself was a convert to the Irish language revival movement. Although he didn't speak Irish, he was elected to the governing body of the Gaelic League in 1902. He became an enthusiastic promoter and propagandist. This despite the fact that he was often impatient with the League and its internal bickering and intolerance. On its side, the League didn't approve of his efforts to promote a national literature in English. To them, Irish was the only means of expressing Celtic thought. An interesting sidelight on the status of the Irish language at the time comes from the novelist Seamus O'Kelly. He was writing some years later in the Irish Rosary about the first raftery fesh held in Killineen in South Galway in August 1901 and presided over by Gerald O'Donovan. The attendance at the first raftery fesh was not very large, but it was very Irish, although one could see by the people that when Father O'Donovan was speaking, he was preaching a gospel which was to them very new. It was the first time they had heard the Irish-Ireland doctrine publicly expounded, although the district was always Irish-speaking. Two years after the foundation of the Gaelic League, the Irish Agricultural Organisation Society, or the Cooperative Movement, as it's generally called, was founded. The society, as Giroda Tuhi said, was concerned with the use of the land which was being transferred from the landlords to the tenant farmers, like O'Donovan's people in Bandon. Here, ironically, the main evangelist was himself a member of the landlord class, Sir Horace Plunkett, the founder of the cooperative movement. The Diary of Horace Plunkett, February 1899. The Reverend J. O'Donovan, C.C., a young, cultured, gentlemanly priest, who was supposed to have influence on his bishop, Healy, D.D., Bishop of Clonfert, joined the organisation. He also writes for the ecclesiastical record, which the priesthood consult, and I wanted him to study our movement in hopes he will educate the clergy about it. To Plunkett's satisfaction, the young priest immersed himself in the movement and was eventually elected to the executive committee where he represented Connacht, which had 40% of the membership of the entire movement. In the New Ireland Review in August 1899, he outlined his philosophy on cooperation. It is the bringing together of all classes, high and low, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, for the common good. It is a levelling up and a levelling down. It is a raising of the poor and uneducated to the level of the rich and educated. And it is a bringing down of these from the exclusive position of isolation they hitherto occupied in Ireland. In 1895, Maynooth College celebrated its centenary, and as part of the elaborate celebrations, the inaugural meeting of the Maynooth Union was held. This union was a group of former students who planned to meet each year to discuss questions of interest to ecclesiastics. In his short ministry, Gerald O'Donovan, 
on the invitation of the President, Dr. Mannix, addressed the meeting three times, a distinction given only to those considered the best of former students. In June 1901, his subject was ecclesiastical art, at a time when the standard, from an artistic point of view, was very low indeed, and imported from abroad. When we consider that the churches of Ireland are built to the glory of God by the hard-earned money of the poor, there must be very strong reasons indeed to justify anyone engaged in church building in spending the money of an impoverished people for the enrichment of foreign nations to the detriment of art and trade in Ireland. We have hitherto allied ourselves with the Philistines in art and have followed the lead of incompetent architects and pushful commercial travellers from Birmingham and Munich who make periodic calls on the patronage of the clergy. Shall we make a new start? The Evening Herald, July the 8th, 1901. Fearless was the young priest's indictment of his superiors, absolutely fearless. Nothing did he say that has not been said over and over again in this and other Dublin newspapers. But the truth was brought to the doorstep of Maynooth, and there was no excuse not to hear and not to heed. His own bishop, Dr Healy of Clonfert, heard and heeded, and with some encouragement from Edward Martin, decided to put his ideas to work in the newly built cathedral of St Brendan in Loch Ray. But first money had to be collected, so Father O'Donovan was sent on the usual lecture tour of America. He left in some style. Edward Martin accompanied him in a carriage to the station, escorted by 300 members of the Total Abstinence Society, headed by a brass band. At the station, an immense crowd of townspeople had come to see him off. The American tour was very successful. He spoke on all aspects of the Irish revival. His return was greeted with more music and cheering townspeople, and an address of welcome from the people of Loch Ray. The Western News... July 1902. Locre is rejoicing over the return of the priest, not prodigal, and never was rejoicing more sincere and better directed. The return of Father O'Donovan of Locre removes a feeling of loneliness. With a man like Father O'Donovan out of Ireland, one feels as if there is an empty corner in the house, and a sense of relief comes with his return. Soon afterwards he was appointed administrator, and he began his great work on the cathedral. You've got a whole history of Irish stained glass for the last 80 years in the windows around the church. But the most important windows are those not in the same character as the others, but those over the, over the altar, the resurrection, um, the agony in the garden and the Annunciation. And these were done by an Englishman, A.E. Child, who came to Ireland simply to do these windows. He was given a job in the Metropolitan School um, and, and worked from that and then worked with Sarah Purser um, in her cooperative, which she established on Turglinia, which is the cooperative for stained glass. And it was that Turglinia which we will find in the other windows. These are a movement away from the, the types of glass which you will find in Ireland. You're getting a perspective in them. You're getting um, lanes throughout so as to show a change. Um, A.E. Child developed his style from Christopher Wall, who did the stained glass windows, which are in Laban, which is just down the way. And he and Wall learned them from William Morris. So you're finding a total different attitude than the usual Italian and, and German windows that you'll find in most other parish churches in the country. O'Donovan brought in artist craft workers when there was no um, 
know-how in the country. He brought the artist craft worker to Ireland, ensured that they got a job here, and they in turn developed the style of art and craft work in the country. Here you have the stained glass being taught by a child, and Sarah Purser developing that industry afterwards. One of the first commissions given by Father O'Donovan was for a set of 24 banners for the Cathedral Sodality. This was to the embroiderers of the Dunemer Guild, many of whom had just returned to Ireland from abroad, and like the stained glass artists, had been in touch with new international trends. Possibly the best and first work done by the Dunemer Guild is here at Loch Ray, in all of the banners, in the tabernacle veils and in some of the vestments. It's said that they were done by the two Yates sisters, Lily and Lolly Yates, uh, and also by uh, Pamela Coleman-Smith. And many artists of the time considered that they, it is said that they had some part to play in the designing of, of these beautiful work, this beautiful embroidery. O'Donovan was one of the first voices from within the Irish church to question the preoccupation with the religious and pietistic aspect of Catholicism at the expense of the social and intellectual dimensions. Not for him, the Sogatharun, idolised by a simple and ignorant peasantry. Priests, I think, should encourage laymen to take an interest in affairs that bear on religion. Laymen in Ireland often complain that they have been kept out of all things, that the rule, not only in purely religious matters, but in all things even remotely connected with the church, is that the priest lays down the law and laymen mutely obey. The result could only be apathy and indifference. That was from an address to the Maynooth Union in June 1903. Despite the excellence of the theory, it is amusing to note that he himself sometimes fell short on practice and was accused of impatience by laymen who expressed opinions with which he disagreed. At the Maynooth Union a year later, he touched upon an even more sensitive issue. If the Church claims authority in secular education, she must fit herself for the work. Later on in the Independent Review, he developed this. The practical obstacle to efficient secular education in Ireland narrows itself down to the local clerical manager. As a rule, he is inefficient. There are notable exceptions. I speak only in general terms. The great majority of managers are not to be blamed. They are merely the instruments of a policy in the direction of which they have no voice yet they occupy an unfortunate position to the lasting injury of the children of Ireland of this generation. He was well ahead of his time, too, in his ideas about the education of girls. He was particularly critical of the intermediate education in convent schools, what he called an imperfect knowledge of a few useless subjects that were supposed to be a young lady's education. In fact, the young lady has disappeared, and the woman has again appeared in life. The supposition is that this growing woman has a mind to be developed, not to be cramped, as the young lady's was. In 1903, the bishop, Dr Healy, was transferred, and a new bishop of Clonfert was appointed. He was Dr Thomas O'Dee, a Clare man, and like O'Donovan, a man of strong views. Within a year, the relationship between the two men, priest and bishop, had reached a critical stage. Diary of Horace Plunkett September the 28th, 1904. Father O'Donovan told me he had thrown up the ministry at Loch Ray, being unable to put up with his bishop, who had no knowledge of life whatsoever.
Neither Dr. O'Dee nor Father O'Donovan has left an account of that unfortunate episode. Father Ned Stankard, until recently administrator of Loch Ray, has heard some of the local theories. Well, no one has told me the exact reason, but I, I lived with an old parish priest, Father Melvin, and uh, he told me that, and he would have known him reasonably well, because he worked with him in the diocese, that he left because of a difference between himself and the bishop, and it was strictly between himself and the bishop. And in later years, most priests who have had any knowledge of uh, Father Donovan have come to the conclusion, I think it should be accepted as the reason, that he spent very little time as administrator at the cathedral, that he travelled around the country, and as everybody knows, he, he uh, used platforms all over the country at the time on speaking about cooperatives and so on. He travelled a lot out of Ireland, so I think that it should be accepted that the bishop had given him an ultimatum or threatened him that many times I would say that if he didn't knuckle down to the work at the parish uh, that would be the end. And obviously Father Donovan didn't see it that way and eventually the bishop said this is it and there was no going back of it. The Western News, October the 22nd, 1904. The scene at the railway station when Father O'Donovan was about to depart was a remarkable one. Long before the train started, the platform and the road leading from the town were crammed with young and old, anxious to get his blessing before he left, and several knelt on the ground to receive it. And as the train steamed from the station, cheer after cheer was raised for the good Sogart who was severing his connection with them. Father O'Donovan appeared deeply affected, and kept waving his hat until the train was out of sight. Ralph took off his clerical collar and proceeded to dress in secular clothes. He made several efforts to knot his tie. It was years since he'd worn one, and he'd forgotten how to knot it. Every new effort resulted in a more hopeless failure. He shut his eyes at length and trusted to the memory of his fingers with complete success. In some obscure way, the incident helped him. His languor passed away. He finished dressing with a new sense of power. For the first time, he noticed the view from his bedroom window, the pond in Stephen's Green, the Dublin mountains looming blue and mysterious beyond the intervening houses and smoke. He looked again at the pond. A small boy was throwing bread to the ducks and the memory of his own childhood came back to him. He felt young again and had a momentary impulse to join the little boy and feed the ducks too. He laughed joyously. He took up his clerical collar and looked at it curiously. He smiled as he thought of how he had dreaded laying it aside. And now there was only a sense of escape from bondage, of freedom. He stood on the deck of the Hollyhead mailboat, his eyes fixed on the receding Irish coast. The sands at Merion, Hothhead, Brayhead, the Wicklow Mountains recalled youthful dreams. In the blind groping way, which is the way of life, he felt that he had been true to them. Life was larger than his vision of it, and where he had read failure, life marked advance. 
He walked the deck with a springy step, breathing an east wind that made his face smart with a sense of victory. I have found myself at last, he said under his breath. Gerald O'Donovan left Ireland in 1904 and, like James Joyce, that same year went into exile from family, church and country. Why did he go? Why should a priest, popular, hard-working, seemingly in good standing with his church and just starting work on the cathedral, which must have been very dear to his heart, suddenly throw it all up? Was it simply a difference with his bishop? John F. Ryan. It was clear from about 1901 onwards that uh, Father O'Donovan, who was uncomfortable with the pietistic aspects of Irish Catholicism, uh, was becoming increasingly disillusioned with the social role which uh, he saw the Catholic Church playing in Ireland. He blamed it particularly for its uh, failure to contribute adequately to the revival movement in which he was so uh, deeply involved. Uh, many of his ideas were, um, post, broadly speaking, post-Vatican II. Uh, for example, his view that the Church uh, and by extension the priest in his pastoral work uh, should be more outlooking towards the world and more engaged in social affairs uh, and his views on the role of the laity in the church a uh, subject which is uh, fairly topical these days uh, but of course these views were not acceptable uh, to his uh, contemporaries uh, but it was on the education question uh, that the real difficulties arose uh, and the extent of these became obvious uh, a couple of months after his departure, uh, when, on the subject of education, uh, he concluded that the church uh, could give up her role in, in secular education without sacrificing any essential principle. Uh, education uh, was an area where he had uh, a particular interest. Uh, he believed that uh, reform here was crucial uh, for the success of the revival. And, of course, uh, the church, uh, which always jealously guarded its position here, uh, had a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Uh, uh, Father O'Donovan was, of course, a man of strong views uh, who sought open debate in these areas. And it was a particularly repressive period in the Irish Church and that there was little enthusiasm for open discussion on such matters, uh, as uh, was to become evident a couple of years later uh, when the two minute professors, uh, Dr Walter MacDonald and... Uh, Dr. Michael O'Hickey uh, ran into difficulties with the church uh, because they raised uh, questions in similar areas. Diary of Horace Plunkett, 7th of May, 1908. Father O'Donovan is bankrupt and altogether out of sorts and is going to unfrock himself and look around for work. He is very low. I offered financial help. He was rather hurt. As a layman, he was appointed sub-warden of Toynbee Hall, a workers' college in East London. He hadn't completely broken the connection with friends in Ireland and came back from time to time. It was on one of these visits to the home of Hugh Law, the Nationalist MP in Donegal, that he met his future wife, Beryl Verscoyle. The Verscoyles were a Northern Irish Protestant family. Um, my grandfather was Archdeacon of... Um, Irvin's town, and he had built a large Georgian looking house with 23 rooms um, on a farm of about 400 acres. 
about two or three miles outside the town. There were five boys, all of whom received some kind of training and were then sent more or less out of the country to earn their living at a fairly young age. My grandfather went into the army and um, ended up as colonel of the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry. In her unpublished memoirs, Beryl recalls their first meeting. It was, she remembers, the year of the death of King Edward VII, and she was dressed all in black when she drove up to Marble Hall, Hugh Law's house in Donegal. To reach this paradise, one drove 16 miles over heathery hills and marshy valleys on an outside car. When I arrived, still swathed in black for the dead king and wearing, or rather clinging, to my ridiculous black cartwheel hat, a charming and to me unknown man came out to hand me down. Five days later, Gerald proposed, in so determined and authoritative a manner, I could only say yes, but did not agree, much to his aggrieved astonishment, to being married at once. The long letters which Gerald wrote almost daily to Beryl, in minute handwriting, which he found very difficult to read, reveal something of his state of mind at the time. If I ever achieve anything, it will be through my love for you. We are going to be young with an eternal youth. Remember, I say this after a lifetime in which I have had to shed many an illusion, have had many bitter experiences, and have been on the verge of regarding life and all the people who enjoy it with cynical contempt. When our engagement was announced, I could see it came as a shock. Gerald was considerably older and exceedingly brilliant intellectually. Nobody thought me at all up to his standard, which was true, and I was humbly aware of it. He loved me for what I was, gay, young and enthusiastic. His entire devotion was given to me, and I valued his love and tried to be worthy of it. They were married in Whitechapel Registry in London in October 1910. Gerald was 39 years old and Beryl about 15 years younger. I was aware of the full story of his past, and I was prepared to take on the troubles that would be heaped on us. I never regretted this decision. Our marriage caused a great disturbance in Ireland. I never met any member of his family from which he became an outcast. Many of his lifelong friends rejected him, and others went further and would have done much to injure us. Beryl's own family approved of the marriage, and Colonel Verscoyle and his son-in-law were to become close friends. The couple had three children, two daughters, Bridget and Mary, and a son, Dermot. In the years after his marriage, he moved from job to job, the army, the civil service and publishing, as well as writing his first two novels, Father Ralph and Waiting, in 1913 and 1914. In 1918, he moved to the British Department of Propaganda, where he headed the Italian section. Here he continued to attract controversy. Instead of confining himself to propaganda work, he became involved in internal Italian politics, which caused a flurry in diplomatic circles in London and Rome. The Vatican too was alarmed at the decision of the British government to send an unfrocked priest and his wife to inspect and supervise propaganda, and made its views known in a series of protests to the Foreign Office in London. To sum up this phase of his life, it is obvious that, while O'Donovan was a skilful and competent propagandist, he did not appreciate the complexity of politics and diplomacy. 
it was clear that he had neither the temperament nor the training in the skills that the post demanded. Among his colleagues at Crewe House, the headquarters of the propaganda department, was the writer Rose Macaulay, who became a close friend. In her biography of Rose Macaulay, her cousin, Constance Babington Smith, has described this friendship as central to Rose Macaulay's life. For nearly 20 years, until his death during the Second World War, he was the dominant personal influence on her life. We know from Rose Macaulay's published letters to an Anglican priest that the friendship, as well as bringing intense joy, also troubled her conscience and for a time didn't allow her to go to the sacraments. We do not know what were Gerald's feelings and Beryl doesn't refer to it in her memoirs. Bridget O'Donovan remembers Rose Macaulay as among the family friends. Well, I interpreted the friendship of both Rose Macaulay and Marjorie Cook um, in much the same way as being people who were very fond of him and fond of us and not so fond of my mother. Um, and Rose being, prop being a friend who was nearest to him in intellectual, in the intellectual sense. He was extremely clever and none of us were extremely clever. He was very disappointed in, um, in the way we, you know, we collected thirds. Um, and he and Rose always had a lot to talk about. They used to do the Times crossword together over the telephone. Um, and Rose in the 20s and early 30s used to come to lunch about every other Sunday. And she used to take us out and take us to the cinema, take us to the theater and that sort of thing. And I always regarded her as a, as a faithful family friend, which indeed she turned out to be. The early 1920s mark a turning point in the life of Gerald O'Donovan. His sixth and last novel was published in 1922. He'd lost contact with Ireland, which had provided the inspiration and the material for his work, and his life in England failed to fuel the enthusiasm which had so distinguished his early years. His novels reflect his personal experience, and in them we can trace his varied and controversial career, as well as his convictions on the social, cultural, political and religious matters of the day. He, like many other writers, saw the Irish Catholic Church of his time as a barrier to progress, spiritual, intellectual or material, but unlike some others, he remained sympathetic to what he saw as the essentials of Catholicism. In the novels, Father Stankard thinks he gives an honest picture of the Church of his time. I would find his, his books somewhat depressing, and certainly Father Ralph. But uh, if you want to understand the time he lived in, and uh, the people, uh, then you'll get it in Father Ralph very clearly. And um, it is a book that haunted me in many ways, and especially hearing children's confessions in the sense that uh, the man depicted um, the children going to confession in in such a way as he, he himself as a child going to confession. Um, uh, his father bringing him along and so on. Uh, it left me um, haunted in a way uh, as to how I was dealing with children and uh, if I had the correct attitude and approach both to uh, hearing the child's confession and, and um, dealing with children generally, being kind to them and so on. So I can say that um, Father Donovan, Gerald O'Donovan, through Father Ralph, uh, has certainly made me think 
or one aspect of my life anyway. But at the time of publication, although the novels were well received in England and America, in Ireland the reception was extremely hostile. Here, for example, a review of Father Ralph in the Freeman's Journal. The book is a gross libel on the Irish priesthood and on the Irish people. It was written by a man who was once a Catholic curate, but who has chosen for himself a more comfortable career. One review Gerald liked to keep in his pocket and laugh over. It was headed Slime from an Irish Gutter. As a family man, O'Donovan played his part in caring for his three children, who were brought up in the Church of England, religious training being left to Beryl, to whom he gave any support she asked for. He made all decisions about their education. They all went to university, Oxford and Cambridge. Throughout his life, his abiding interest was in literature and literary affairs. He was an avid reader of history, and his daughter Bridget recalls that he read a detective novel a day. She recalls, too, that he had a special fondness for the stories of the Irish RM, which he thinks may have been a kind of nostalgia for Ireland. He retained a lifelong association with a few of the friends he had made in Ireland during the early years of the century. This was especially so with George Moore, the writer who had most influenced his literary career. A frequent visitor to the house we had taken in London was George Moore, who used to come and discuss the Irish idiom in his book, A Traveller's Holiday. Like my husband, he talked walking, and they would stalk to and fro, crossing and recrossing in front of the fire, arguing furiously while I curled up in the sofa out of the way. And in 1935, another old friend wrote from Dublin. Dear O'Donovan... It is very kind of you, after so many years, to remember me and send me your congratulations. I do not know how many years it is since I stayed with you at Lochray and moralised over the broken pane of glass in the fanlight. I think you told me it had been made by a drunken woman who had some distaste for the bishop. I remember saying it was the only sign of secular activity in the town. Yours, W.B. Yates. In 1939, while on holiday in the Lake District, he was injured in a motoring accident. Soon afterwards, he suffered a stroke, from which he never fully recovered. The family left London and moved to Albury in Surrey. The years in Albury were sad ones. The youngest daughter, Mary, died at the age of 23, following an accident. Gerald underwent surgery for cancer in 1942, and on his 71st birthday, on July the 15th, it was clear that he was dying. The local parson from up the road was a very great friend and came in every single day and I don't know what they talked about but they talked a lot together and I was just sent for the night before he died the day before he died when I arrived of course he was as I think often happens in very good spirits and wanted to hear some more of the Irish RM and uh, then next day he died and Rose Macaulay was there and um, my mother and myself and the people who had been nursing him. On July the 26th, 11 days after his 71st birthday, Beryl's diary records... Gerald left me this morning. The local parson was his friend, Reverend Philip Gray, the rector of Albury, who wrote to Beryl after her husband's death. From the first day when I met him in your house in London... I felt drawn to him by the sympathy and freedom from all pettiness of his lovable character and his forthright outlook. There was a greatness about Gerald O'Donovan 
which, under a cloak of real humility, he kept hidden and was only discovered by those who had been blessed by his friendship and confidence. Lovely men, everyone loved them. He was loved and liked in this town. Why wouldn't he for what he'd done? For the, that kitty little. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.